My name is Amy Fetzer, Head of Research and Analysis at Footprint Intelligence. Welcome to this Footprint podcast supported by Nestle Professional. Today, myself and my guests will discuss the complex subject of sustainable diets and how the concept is manifesting itself in hospitality and food service today to offer insight and pathways to better practice. This comes ahead of a report on the major trends and developments in sustainable diets covering everything from cultured meat to plant-forward commitments that their footprint and Nestle Professional will be publishing later this year. The concept of sustainable diets that are good for both human health and the health of our planet has been widely embraced by both the hospitality and food service industry, its clients and the people it feeds. As an indication of the public shift, a footprint poll undertaken for our 2022 Footprint Sustainability Index found that 64% of UK citizens had tried to reduce the amount of meat they eat in the last 12 months. So to get to the heart of some of the issues, I'm really excited to be joined today by some great experts from across the hospitality and food service industry. We've got Chantelle Nicholson, who's a chef patron of Apricity and All's Well. And whilst in her previous role at Treadwells, she oversaw it achieving a coveted green Michelin star. We have Emily Pinkney, who's head of sustainability for the major food distributor Cisco Speciality Foods. And she formerly worked at John Lewis and Waitrose in ethics and sustainability. We have Marissa Heath, the chief executive from Plant Based Food Alliance, which represents food and drinks producers manufacturers, NGOs, consumer organisations and more in influencing policymakers to develop legislation and government positions that support the growth of plant-based foods. We have Anna Collins, who's the nutrition manager at Nestle, and she is a qualified nutritionist and dietitian with over 15 years experience, and she supports a range of business functions uh, across the strategy, marketing and R&D teams. First, I'd like to quickly set the scene before we get cracking on our discussion. The food system is responsible for 31% of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions, according to the FOA. So food service businesses understand that to achieve net zero, they need to address the emissions that come from the ingredients they use on the plate, in particular livestock products, which have a disproportionate planetary impact. The concept of sustainable diet has evolved dramatically in the last few years. When people used to use the term, it used to have quite a sort of broad definition with a lot of focus on local and provenance and seasonality. But most food service operations now realise that between 70 to 90 percent of their carbon footprint comes from the ingredients on the plate. So attention has shifted to these menus and ingredients and their carbon impacts, as well as other things like biodiversity and water use. According to Deloitte Research, vegan and plant based are now the biggest disruptor after COVID for a generation in their 2021 Future Food Tracker. We've also seen that uh, the Climate Change Committee recommends that to achieve our Uh, net zero targets here in the UK, we need to reduce our meat consumption from 260 grams in 2019 to 650 grams per week by 2050. There's also been a 49% increase in the sales of plant-based foods and drink across Europe between 2018 and 2020, and 14% of UK consumers now define themselves as flexitarians, according to YouGov. So there's a lot of interesting stuff here to get started on. So there's been a really, really big shift in what's happening out there in hospitality and food service and what consumers are looking for. So it would be really great if we could start with somebody who's at the coal space of serving the public, and that would be Chantelle Nickerson from Apricity. So maybe you could tell us what you're seeing in the restaurant itself and what kinds of dishes people are asking for and what you committed to in terms of supplying and meeting the need of sustainable diners? Yeah, that's kind of the, the million the million pound question, isn't it? I think that there's a lot of um, unawareness out there about things such as seasonality um, and what's deemed you know, kind of to be, to be something that's a bit more sustainable. Um, I think sometimes 
from my perspective, there's a bit too much of a focus on carbon, um, which doesn't necessarily lend itself to um, being, you know, wholly sustainable. Um, you know, for instance, intensive feedlots can kind of have lower carbon emissions with their meat than regenerative or than, than other um, farming methods. So, but I think in terms of what, what public are, are wanting, I think there's kind of, a, I guess, a quiet consciousness that's developing more and more about being a bit more wary about where their food comes from and how it gets on their plate. Um, and so I guess from my perspective, that's what we kind of want to do as a Pricity is enable the, the trust to be there that we've kind of, you know, worked as hard as we can to make sure that everything that is on that plate, um, we know where it's come from and it's the best possible outcome that there can be for it to be on that plate. So you're trying to sort of really choose the ingredients and really choose the products that have a good impact across all those important sustainability criteria, you know, biodiversity, soil health, um, you know, welfare of animal, of people, of, you know, workers. That, and that is a really important point that we can't just use this one uh, very specific measure of carbon, but it's very important to look at the whole. Emily, um, from your perspective at Cisco, you know, you obviously supply a huge range of ingredients to people within the hospitality and food service sector. What what are you finding? You know, what kinds of, are, are you noticing that there's a shift away from more plants and more uh, analog products that replace meat you know t- tell us what you're seeing yeah there's definitely a split I mean I'm I guess in this conversation relatively lucky that a, a huge part of my business is fresh produce and that obviously very much lends itself to this conversation um but I think you know you're starting to see some of the really big kind of players in, in chain restaurants pick up on this conversation and um you know you've got restaurants and and kind of committing to having 50 percent of their uh, menu as plant-based and, and things like that and I think that's a really good sign of I think where things are going um but equally then at the same time you know if we look at kind of insight as a business you know meat isn't going anywhere quickly people are still expecting meat on the menu and I think we have had um conversations with our development chefs in terms of well how do we kind of educate those bigger customers to say we're not saying you need to take that away because you know commercially that's not going to be a conversation that businesses would want to have right now and customers as it says to expect it but it's how do you make a more kind of plant-centric plate um that means that you're not just putting the whole focus of the dish on that piece of meat um and you're actually kind of increasing the um the produce and uh the the split of that on there so i think there's um it's, there's two sides to it. I think there is definitely an increased um, expectation and, and interest in it. Um, but I think the actual realistic, how is that playing out, is maybe slightly slower than some of the kind of headlines behind it. Um, but as I said, we're we're really trying to support, you know, where our customers want it. Um, I think there's a huge piece as well in terms of how we educate you know the generations coming up through um chef schools and hospitality and and how they can kind of rethink how they look at developing plates on menus um but yeah i think you know we we are well placed to support in that but it is definitely a conversation that i think needs to be had more widely and uh, that, that education piece i'd like to pick up on that again a bit later but just for the moment are you seeing 
So in your terms of, you know, what customers are buying from you, are you noticing an increase to more whole foods and more actual physical plants? Is it a replacement or just an increase in in plants and whole grains? Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, for some of the customers we have, they're definitely wanting to swap for for whole products rather than a a kind of like-for-like meat replacement. And I think that's quite a positive way of looking at it. I think, you know, the increase in popularity of meat replacement can't be um, kind of shied away from but as a business it's not something that we heavily kind of have on offer so actually we would kind of lean more towards having fresh fruit and veg on the plate and increasing that Um, not to say that we wouldn't look into that kind of in the future but I think yeah definitely it's what customers I think feel more comfortable with if they are kind of looking at coming into the space I think there is a bit of nervousness around meat replacement and what that might taste and, and look like um so yeah definitely definitely whole produce Anna from your perspective at Nestle Professional where you're working really hard on the nutritional profile of your garden gourmet range and other kinds of fabulous vegetarian or vegan products that can directly substitute meat products what conversations are you having with clients what scrutiny are they putting your products under regarding their nutritional profile and should meat substitutes be healthier yeah I think that there's definitely a growing expectation and far more scrutiny around the nutritional qualities of plant-based alternatives. And I think in terms of plant-based products, um, you know, I think we we cover a lot of different categories now when we think of plant-based products. So, you know, it could be anything from a plant-based burger to a plant-based milk alternative. And depending on what these products are, they're going to have a very different nutrition profile. So, for example, if you know, we look at plant-based milks, um, whether it's made from an oat or a soy or a pea um, or almond um, and what other ingredients have been included and even fortification, then potentially the final products can look quite different. And I think that what's really important, though, is that when consumers are choosing plant-based products, um, they are expecting that they're making a healthier choice. And I do think it's really important that these plant-based alternatives are delivering um, to that expectation. Um, I would say all of us here know that that's not always the case. Um, You know, there certainly are some really great plant-based alternative products available, um, but I would say not all of them are as nutritionally balanced. And what I think is important is that, you know, if the product is replacing something um, that is providing, for example, protein, then I think it's important that that alternative will also be a source of protein. Um, And if it's plant-based, then fibre is important as well. And then I think we also need to consider some of the public health guidelines, so things like salt and fat and saturated fat. Um, Again, going back to if consumers are expecting a plant-based product to provide a healthy choice, then it's really important that it's doing that. That's really helpful. Thank you, Anna. And Marissa, I was just uh, thinking from your perspective from the the Alliance and all you're seeing about uh, reaction to plant-based foods, you know, what's you know, are you seeing a, a really big uh, embracing of, of these alternatives? And what kind of questions are people asking in terms around, you know, hitting those kind of health benefits as well as the planetary ones? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, we're seeing a lot of movement and some big scale companies as well who are going into this area. So where it used to be a kind of there were the plant based groups and then there were the meat and dairy groups, you're actually now seeing the big players like Nestle, like Mars, like Unilever, Danon and all of those companies who've moved over and are across the the portfolios the conversations have been much more interesting about the place that plant-based has 
within the whole sort of food landscape. Um, the questions that are asked are, as Anna just touched on, the ones about the um, nutritional levels of plant-based. There's been a lot of conversations going on, particularly at government level, about ultra-processed foods, for example. Um, I've seen a shift from a lot of companies who have been trying to replicate with meat analogues, burgers, hot dogs, things like that, which, frankly, let's face it, whichever you're eating, animal-based or plant-based, aren't the most healthy option to be eating anyway. They're meant to be a treat. So there's been the replacement of products like that, which have been hugely popular. But now we're actually seeing quite a few companies look at how they can get more aligned to the actual plants they made things from. So can you make a something that looks like a sausage or a burger that is actually the vegetables? There's sort of a move back to that again. Um, so there are thoughts on clean label to get away from that view that the, the plant-based food might be ultra-processed. But at the end of the day, the conversations need to be about nutrition broadly. Ultra-processed is not the only conversation to be had to be had it needs to be about the nutrient levels in that food and what we are seeing is huge amounts of investment and thought again going on by some of the really big companies about how they can up their game on that nutrient level as well as the taste and texture of products and i think we're going to see some quite exciting things we already are i mean seafood for example over the last couple of years has really developed a lot in that area and we're getting products like um, richmond sausages the plant-based version of their sausages which taste really similar to the main line, for example. Um, so, so all of that investment and thought that's going on for the future, I think it's going to really have the UK at the forefront of this and, and producing some great food that can meet, meet the nutritional requirements as well as taste and texture. Marissa, that's a really good point around the health um, the health implications and, and the communication to the consumer. Anna, I know that uh, Nestle at Garden Gourmet have done a lot of work on making sure that the products you know, hit all three, uh, all the green boxes in kind of health terms. How are you managing to communicate these, you know, the credentials and the health benefits and the sort of, how can we reassure people about using these products and how can people know that they're choosing a product that has been careful with its carbon impact, its biodiversity impacts and its health impacts? Yeah, I think that's a great question because, as I mentioned earlier, I think there is more scrutiny um, and probably more wariness coming from consumers now and certainly some provocative headlines as well are probably um, making consumers aware that they need to question the healthiness of their products. For us, it's really important that um, when we communicate to consumers or to businesses that we're clear, we're transparent, um, that anything we say is backed by um, evidence or is lined up against government guidelines. So, for example, when we talk about the nutrition benefits of our Garden Gourmet products, we do talk about um, the nutrition contents. So, we can talk about whether it's a source of protein or source of fibre or what nutrients it contains. And then we can also refer back to government guidelines, public health guidelines, because I think that's reassuring for people to know that we're using independent guidelines um, to help guide our product development. So, again, I would talk about, for example, the um, government's UK salt reduction program has got guidelines as to what plant-based um, alternative products should look like from a salt content point of view and we've got a government nutrient profiling model, which we can use to help determine whether it's a healthier looking product or drink. 
and even something as simple as using the government front of pack traffic light labelling scheme, which provides some thresholds for fat, saturated fat, salt and sugars. Again, I think that's quite an easy and transparent way that we can demonstrate to consumers where our products sit for public health, but also it's a way that consumers can compare products um, like for like so they can look at you know two different burgers and make an assessment as to the healthiness of them if, if we're using independent guidelines like the government's public health ones. So that's really helpful in, in a kind of retail environment. But Chantel, how can we communicate these really complex messages to people in the very crowded food service environment where there's a lot going on and very little space on the menu already? Um, yeah, it's something that I've probably had a bit of a challenge with as well because you don't want to, I think for me, especially you know, in an independent restaurant, you, know, you don't want to be um, dictatorial in, in how you go about things because eating out should be kind of about joy and pleasure. So you don't want to kind of be, you know, um, telling people what they should be eating and how they should be eating it necessarily. So for me, it's, it's that kind of balanced nuance between there's more information if people want it, but if they're just happy to enjoy what they're having, then that's fine. But if they want to know, you know, for instance, where their mushrooms come from, or if they want to know where something on that on their plate has come from, then we we have that information for them. Um, and I think for us, we just kind of make it clear on our website about what our ethos is and what our intention is, and and talk about our suppliers and the relationship we have with them. Um, but in terms of other aspects of it, I think it's again, as I was talking about before, I think there's that, that kind of um, subconscious trust that, that comes with, you know, you know that what we're going to put on your plate is going to be of a certain, you know, we've done our, we've worked our hardest to make it as 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 positive um, as possible. And I think it's slightly different with nutritional information. Obviously, being a small operator, we're not obliged to put calories on our menu, um, which I also kind of disagree with. And I think it's finding that way to communicate it that isn't, Kind of, you're not kind of overzealous about it, or not coming off as being too virtuous. It's just, you know, you're kind of laying out the information there in an objective um, frame, so people can choose. And Emily, from a from a supplier perspective, obviously, when people have done their carbon footprints, um, when they're looking at setting net zero targets or that kind of thing, they often find that between sort of seventy to nine percent of their um, impact comes from those ingredients on the plate. So there's been a lot of uh, shift towards the concepts like regenerative agriculture, which typically can be summarised as farming systems that add carbon and fertility to the soil, as well as having a positive impact on diet on biodiversity um you know how are you as a supplier um helping to provide this information for your hospitality and food service clients are you able you know at the moment to give them any detail about you know this potato versus that potato or are you only able to kind of give very generic um industry figures for what a potato's impact might be or you know that kind of thing yeah i mean i guess we so we are produce buyers have some like really amazing relationships with our suppliers so they they will know kind of potato by potato kind of what the differences are and and what those suppliers are doing and there's some really amazing work being done by some of the kind of farmers and suppliers we work with and you know there's there's that element to it and us kind of sourcing responsibly from people that are kind of using regenerative practices um 
But I guess then there is that quite live conversation that we're having in Cisco globally in terms of how do we then um, put a a kind of carbon digit next to um, one product over the other. And I think we, you know, Cisco covers kind of numerous countries across the globe. So we can have quite a, a good kind of collaborative conversation about this. But we're even seeing between ourselves that there's a different way of kind of looking at that carbon footprint of a product in, you know, between us in UK and between our counterparts in France. So actually, how do we come at this in a really consistent way where we're not all kind of going down different methodologies or um, we're not kind of displaying things in different ways? You know, I think that's that's not even just for food. I think across sustainability as a whole, that's a real issue um, that we're kind of all having to face into in, 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 as individuals and as companies in different ways. Um, so it is, you know, there is that bit of we we could we will look into kind of what does carbon labelling mean for us and how do we then kind of show that to consumers on the plate. Um, but there is equally then that other part of it, which is, you know, I read a study recently where they put in carbon labels in, in kind of cafeteria menus and they didn't really see any difference in uptake on lower carbon options. And that was partly due to the fact that there wasn't many on offer. So actually, most of the options were the higher carbon. So looking at the two between them, actually, there wasn't much difference. So there's the kind of transparency of information, but then there also has to be then the diversity of offer to go alongside it. I think that's a really good point, because often, and this happens often in the the straight health sphere as well, that things aren't always included in those offers or aren't priced like for like. And sometimes that's because these newer products have had a lot of R&D and so they are, you know, they aren't able to discount them as heavily, but it just creates challenges for consumers who make decisions based on a myriad of things and costs and promotions and offers are, are one of those um, key factors. I mean, I, I going back to the um, the relationships and the conversations you'll have with, with your suppliers, um, I know that, for example, Nestle is investing 960 million in regenerative agricultural process supply chain. McDonald's is working with um, farms to define the benefits of applying regenerative agriculture to beef farming. You know, all of these things are happening. But I know that from conversations that we're having as part of our uh, sustainable diets white paper that's coming out in November, the research for that, that for you know that for distributors and, and food suppliers such as yourself, sometimes the systems aren't even set up to show the certification or, you know, which which businesses, you know, have already made a, a you know, carbon target or a net zero target or have a, another certification like B Corp. So how, um, you know, is it easy for operators when they're choosing what products to put on their list to know which, which of those suppliers and producers are the ones actually working quite hard on sustainability in the background? Yeah, I think, I mean, we, um, yeah, our producers um, will obviously work closely with our buying team and then our, our buying team work incredibly closely with our kind of sales team because, you know, they're not only there to kind of run accounts, but they're equally there to to give them the information. And customers are demanding this of us now. We can't not kind of have that information to go with. Um and, you know, I think it also then lends it back to um, what Chantel was saying about that brand trust piece. You know, we're not the front facing part of the, the kind of food service industry. We, we supply the restaurants. So they need to have the confidence that whatever they're putting on their menu aligns with what customers assume that they will be giving them. So, you know, there's so many um, different factors that go into kind of what you could deem a, more, a sustainable kind of food product and, um, you know, certifications are great and they go a really kind of 
kind of got a good way towards kind of defining that. But you're never going to be able to have a customer that understands what all these different certifications mean. So we kind of need to have that information there for, for our customers, which are the kind of restaurants and hospitality industry. And then, you know, there probably needs to be a, an industry-wide effort. So then how do we then dispel that to kind of the customers at the end of that chain? Um, but we would, yeah, definitely gather that information and, and have that there for our customers because they, they need it and they want it. And Marissa, from your perspective, you know, where, what do you see all the brands that are part of your alliance? You know, what, what are they having to do to make sure, because often it's such a fragmented supply chain that people kind of understand, you know, what Oatly, you know, means as a, as a brand or as a product, you know, what, how are they, what are they doing to, to kind of make sure that, especially in the hospitality and food service space, that the, the messages are getting through? Well, I mean, the brands are upfront looking at how they can be at the forefront of changes to farming, for example. So that's conversations we're having because obviously there's been big changes to the way that we do farming in, in the UK alone. So they're sort of looking upfront of how they can be involved in that level. Um, there's a lot of conversations about things like eco-labelling and traceability. And we know, I mean, the plant-based movement started from veganism which was about people being concerned about the food they were eating. This was a kind of set of people that wanted to look at the label and wanted to understand things. So they're already ahead of the game in understanding that use of things like blockchain and stuff will mean that in the future someone will be able to scan a QR code on a menu or an item of food and be able to sort of drill down on all of the ingredients. Where did the um, cocoa come from, for example? Has it come? Is, is any links to deforestation? What are the workers' rights? All of those sorts of things. So but having all those um, conversations now about ensuring their supply chains are clean, because as I said, they come from a history of people who've interrogated what are in their products. That's not to say that everything's perfect. I'm sure it's not like the whole food system needs to get sort of better at traceability. And I think government has a role there as well about sort of defining the levels and where things um, come from. And even getting to something so basic, I mean, we're not completely where we need to be with eco-labelling, are we? There's loads of different variations as to how people do eco-labelling and a lot of accusations of greenwashing and those sorts of things. So that's where there is a role for government. And we as an alliance are saying, please set that role, work internationally to make it easy for our food companies to move goods as well, because obviously food is being imported and exported all the time. Um, Set those levels so that a consumer can see straight away if an if a item of food is sustainable or not via a traffic light system or whatever it's going to be. But that's more complicated than carbon. I mean, we touched it at the beginning of the conversation. This is about water use, land use, um, um, use of fertilisers, all sorts of things that also tie into the green agenda. Um, and I think that um, there's a lot of work to do, but I hope that to a certain extent, the plant-based um, sector is is probably slightly ahead of the game on it. And we we also have a lot of small companies, SMEs starting up, who are buying their produce and starting from the level of knowing exactly where all the products, are, the um, ingredients that are going into things are coming from already. So we just have to sort of maintain that as companies get bigger. And that's where it becomes more complex. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Marissa. And Chantelle, um, we touched earlier on the issue of um, education. So a lot of often cooking with less meat in a dish or with replacing meat with a, another 
uh, veg, you know, uh, bog standard plant-based item like you know tempura, tenderloin, broccoli instead of you know your chicken in a in a curry, for example, or using an actual meat analog. These can require different skills and knowledge for both chefs and also many the many design teams and the procurement and you know everybody along the chain. So, what do you see? You know, what's happening within the industry to give uh, sort of all these different teams, the development teams and the chefing teams and the prepping teams, the skills that they need to prepare these dishes well and make sure they are accepted and as delicious um, as they need to be for consumers to actually want to continue eating them? It's a really interesting question. And I think that, you know, I think there are um, providers that are now, training providers that are now doing more to do with plant-based. Um, but I think it is, it, it's with food in general, it's very much a... You know, it kind of depends on the the working environment. It depends on the kitchen. It depends on the chef. It depends on, you know, where the message is coming from within the organisation. Um, I think that in general, you know, meat was always seen as kind of the hardest section in in many kitchens. It was kind of the pinnacle that you got to um, in traditional, I guess, for want of a better word, fine dining kitchens. And I think there's a bit of a shift in some ways that actually now, you know, vegetables need to be the star of the show um, and that actually there needs to be a bit more of a, a skill set with that. Um, I mean, across the industry, our, we're, you know, we're in a massive skills shortage at the moment. So it's a it's a very hard one to throw into the mix now. But I think it's, you know, from my perspective, it's things that, you know, we have been, you know, people have been taught to cook and maybe perhaps, you know, from a biodiversity perspective as well as replacing more things, you know, with pulses and legumes versus trying to find that meat analogue. It's, it's things that we know, you know, lentils or um, forms of split peas or things. It's kind of looking at things that you are familiar with and then being able to turn those into something delicious. But yeah, it does take, I think it takes a bit more thought sometimes than what people were traditionally trained to do. Um but I think it's, you know, that's the, the, the lovely thing about food, though. It's constantly evolving. So I think it's not, you know, it's not kind of a set in stone. It, it means that it just continues along along that path, really. Yeah, and there's been some amazing commitments. Like, I think Compass has committed to switch 40% of its animal proteins to plant-based by 2030. ZEXO's got a target to increase the number of its plant-based meals um, and recipes by 30% by 2025. And uh, Burger King's got a target to make 50% of its menu meat-free by 2030. So there's a lot of movement within the industry. Um, but uh, Anna, do you think from a sort of, from a perspective of one of the manufacturers providing these foods, you know, are you investing a lot in training chefs very specifically to how to use your products? Are you spending a lot of energy going out into industry to make sure everybody knows, you know, because it's a slightly different way to cook a meatball or a burger or Yes, absolutely. I think that's a really great point that you make because going back to when we were talking about having nutritionally balanced um, plant-based alternatives, it's all very well to create, for example, a a plant-based burger um, that offers the right nutrition credentials. But actually, if that ends up on a plate with, um, you know, a sugary bun, loads of fries, mayonnaise and cheese, actually, are we really helping from a sustainable diet's point of view? And for, for Nestle, it's just as important, the final dish or that final recipe that the plant-based products end up in, that that's representing the healthier choice for the end consumer as well. So a big part of what we do is we work with our in-house chefs and also with chefs um, that are our customers 
to provide meal recommendations or recipes that incorporate our products. And we look for things like making sure that any main meal dish would include at least two serves of vegetables per person. We would look at the overall calories of a main meal and try to align with what the public health guidelines would recommend of around 600 calories. Um, Again, we would look at the um, UK salt target recommendation. So we'd look at what a final dish contains with um, salt levels. So absolutely to your question, I think it's just as important that we consider what that final menu item or dish looks like um, and not just what the plant-based ingredient is. And wherever possible, we would welcome working with chefs um, to help with those recommendations. That's fantastic. Thank you. And is anyone seeing, um, you know, there's some some quite far out uh, conversations as well being happening about lab-grown meat or insect-based proteins or flowers. Is, you know, has anyone got any thoughts on kind of those those more dramatic developments in the space do, does anyone see them as something that might you might start seeing in a in a restaurant near you anytime soon there seems to be a lot of investment happening yeah so i mean there's investment happening china the chinese government for example have put quite a lot of money um into developing these sorts of products and um seeing it as a future thing i think the thing i'd say about it is there is definitely a market for it in the future what one way or another whether you disagree or agree with all of the united nations um government climate change commission all of those groups who say we need to reduce meat and dairy now even if you disagreed with that the future growth trajectory is so huge that you literally need another planet if we're going to carry on doing what we're doing in regards to population growth so if people still want to eat meat then i think that um lab developed meat and potentially insect protein are going to have to be part of the answer but i would say that plant-based is here now it's it's ready to go and I think there is just a general need for people to eat more legumes pulses whole grains all of those sorts of things and for the processed foods and the meats to make up a minority of meals going forward that's the absolute answer so um, I think that in the long term yes it will happen Um, and there's huge development they're even making milk I believe now fermented um, dairy which tastes exactly like milk and has the nutrition um, levels of milk so, you know, there's huge, huge things going on and internationally governments are starting to spot this and are investing in the science and technology around it. I don't know about restaurants, that will be for the others to talk about, but I'm sure there'll be an appetite from a lot of people to try it, for sure. At the same hand, there'll be a lot of people who say, I don't want to try it because I don't see it as natural or whatever. But that's another big conversation about what, what is natural food. And Chantal, is it something you could ever see yourself serving in one of your restaurants? Yeah, it, it intrigues me completely. And I don't know enough about them. And I haven't tried enough to actually um, to do so. But you have piqued my interest now as well. I've, it's one of those things that I did mean to look at. But again, I guess it's, you know, looking into how they farmed, how they produced. So it's, I think it's not just as simple as saying they're, you know, they're there. But I think it's something that I will definitely, um, yeah, watch this space. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I think that we're coming to the end of our time. So I thought it might be nice to just go around and if everybody could give um, a closing thought of a potential action that somebody listening, uh, working in the hospitality and food service supply chain could really just think, right, if there's one thing, you know, you could go away and do today to help, um, you know, uh, fight the climate crisis by, you know, embracing uh, the idea and the concept of sustainable diets. 
what would it might be um and it can be something very simple to so something uh kind of macro or micro whichever you prefer emily uh, would you like to start yeah i think i would just say um that i think that there needs to be obviously a, a bigger emphasis on on plant-based menus and dishes um but i think that there's another crucial part of that and that's making it accessible for customers i think if they see something that looks maybe slightly daunting or a bit scary for them to try then they will just not try it and they'll stick to what they know so i think there's something that we can do as an industry to make things uh you know put as much emphasis on making something delicious and inviting as as you would do for maybe a standard meat dish so um yeah i would i would say accessibility is a big part of it i guess i would just say um focus on all of the opportunities to create new things i think there's something like 300,000 edible plants and vegetables out there and we stick to something like 300 or a really 200 maybe it's tiny so all of the chances around there they've just created eggs out of mung beans i mean the opportunities out there to be creative and present people with new foods that can be sustainable and healthy and economically valuable to companies is absolutely huge. So get on the forefront of it, start exploring, engage in it and see what's out there because it's really exciting. If you're passionate about food, there's so much to know and learn about. Fantastic. Thank you, Marissa. Um, Anna, what are your thoughts? So I absolutely agree with what Marissa and Emily have said because I think um, – you know, diversity and accessibility and affordability are three really important factors of sustainable diets. Um, so I would emphasise those. And I would also just say that um, we're on a journey and, you know, every small change that you make towards a plant-based diet or a sustainable diet is a positive one. And it's not an all or nothing. So I think all the small changes are positive steps in the right direction and take your consumer with you on the journey. That's a really good point. And it's a very heartening when you look at menus now, the vegetarian and vegan options are now, you know, often come first. They often are just woven in with the menu. They're sort of shunted away in a sort of seen as in, inferior, you know, vegetarian or vegan section. So it's really fantastic. And Chantelle, if we could end with you uh, on your thoughts. I've got a couple, actually. One of those things for me that works really well with it is, you know, pulses and legumes. And there's an amazing um, British supplier called Hodmy Dodds, which I urge everybody to look at, who grow, yeah, work with farmers that grow um, legumes, pulses and grains. And they're a really affordable thing to put on your menu as well as at home. You know, pulses are just incredibly, they're really nutritious. Um, they add kind of weight and texture and bulk to things. So that's always kind of a really good go-to thing, especially coming into winter when we've got less kind of, of, of um, kind of fresh produce about. And secondly, just look, you know, always be mindful of waste. I think that's a big one. You know, we're talking about feeding the planet. We do have enough food to feed the planet. We just waste a third of it. So if we can kind of just be more, I think just valuing food more is really important and where it comes from and how many people have worked to get it onto a shelf or onto your plate is sometimes, I think, forgotten. So just here, yeah, valuing it more and, and really kind of looking at buying what you need versus buying what you you know, if there's something on offer or on special um, and really looking at ways to minimise your waste and try and, you know, kind of use up everything that you do purchase and which also has a knock-on effect of, of saving you money as well. 
That's absolutely fantastic. Actually, I did mean for us to bring up waste, so I'm very glad that you mentioned it because it is an important part. Um, well, thank you so much to all of you. It's been really fabulous to hear your different perspectives from across the supply chain, which has been really, really helpful. Um, and I just want to sort of end by emphasising it sounds, what's lovely is that the debate has moved on so far. And I think what's very heartening is how many operators are really working extremely hard to change that kind of overall dynamic of their menu to make them uh, so that they are more uh, sustainable for the long term for the health of our planet and for the people on it and all the amazing work the manufacturers and and the distributors are doing to help support that so thank you very much for all your efforts across the supply chain together we can beat all these uh these rather uh daunting challenges that we face but um but one by one every little piece doing its part is making a really significant difference so thank you again to nestle professional for supporting this podcast and enabling us to have and share these important conversations please do also look out for that sustainable diet report that i mentioned earlier which covers the major trends in developments across this space from everything from cultured meat to regenerative agriculture and plant forward commitments and it'll be coming out later this year thank you again